I want you to hit me as hard as you can. His name is Bond. James Bond. He's one of the most iconic figures in cinematic history. The suave MI6 agent who, for almost 60 years, has been shooting, harpooning, and exploding villainous madmen, and bedding beautiful babes with double entendre names. Let's run through the list of Bond portrayers. Sean Connery, George Lazenby, Sean Connery, Roger Moore, Sean Connery. Wait, did Connery not only live twice, but thrice? Well, in 1971, after Lazenby briefly served on Her Majesty's Secret Service, Connery returned to the role of 007 in Diamonds Are Forever. But here we're talking about his next time in 1983's Never Say Never Again, a non-canon franchise entry that was neither shaken nor stirred, just remixed. We look back on the production of this unofficial Bond and ask, what the f**k happened to this movie? Even though Never Say Never Again came out in the fall of 1983, its origins reach back a quarter century earlier. In 1959, a quartet of men gathered in jolly old England to begin plotting a screenplay based on the exploits of 007, who at that point had not yet reached the big screen. The literary jam session included Bond creator Ian Fleming, friend Ivan Bryce, writer Kevin McClory, and former newspaper man and pro football player Ernest Cuneo. McClory, who had begun working lower-level film industry jobs in the 1950s, had a desire to make an underwater picture, first trying to get a project going with the Grapes of Wrath author John Steinbeck. But since the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl don't exactly scream high seas, the project quickly came to a halt. McClory soon fell in with Fleming, who found promise in McClory's directorial debut, A Boy in the Bridge, before it was even released. Shuffling characters, plot lines, and arcs back and forth between so many contributors resulted in numerous outlines and drafts before Fleming finally began losing interest. At that point, McClory recruited screenwriter Jack Whittingham, and the two completed the backbone of what would become Never Say Never Again, two decades later. It was first titled Longitude 78 West, soon to be retitled by Fleming to Thunderball. Fleming announced plans to sell the script, almost altogether removing McClory and Whittingham, who had contributed three drafts, from the remainder of the process. Budgetary restrictions limited studio interest, and so Fleming ultimately novelized the unproduced screenplay, finishing a final draft of Thunderball in March 1960. Fleming gave neither McClory nor Whittingham credit as collaborators, and so began a lawsuit, the first of many to come. In March 1961, McClory and Whittingham pleaded with London's High Court of Justice to stop publication of the book. Fleming won out, publishing his ninth Bond novel later that month. Two years after, in 1963, things started getting hairy as McClory returned for further legal action in the sequel McClory v. Fleming. This second trial favored McClory's copyright infringement claims. As a result, the High Court gave McClory film rights for the screenplay, while Fleming would maintain the book rights. Settling came almost directly from Fleming's pal Ivan Bryce, whose involvement began with the original treatment. Allegedly, one key reason for the brisk settlement was that McClory possessed mysterious, sexually driven letters between Bryce and Fleming that hinted at a romantic relationship which McClory could theoretically have used as blackmail. Less than one year later, Ian Fleming died, after his fourth heart attack. Two of the previous ones occurred during the 1963 trial, which piled mountains of stress on the writer. Well, that and he was a gin fanatic, and he reportedly smoked 60 cigarettes a day, which is a major health no-no. One additional perk for McClory was being awarded a producer credit on the movie Thunderball, which was released in 1965 by Eon Productions. Founded by Albert R. Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, Eon is to the Bond franchise what Lucasfilm is to Star Wars. 
But McClory wouldn't be done with the Bond movies. In fact, he wouldn't even be done with the Thunderball story. An agreement made during the trial was that McClory couldn't try to adapt the story for 10 years, and as soon as that decade lapsed, he was immediately trying to get the original story to the screen again. When the mid-1970s rolled around, McClory teamed with Sean Connery, along with spy novelist Len Dayton, to try to get a script into shape. But these sit-downs were postponed once United Artists and Eon Productions decided their story strayed too far from its original form. A few years later came producer Jack Schwartzman and his production company Talia Film, named after his second wife, Talia Shire. And yes, Jason Schwartzman is their son, adding another branch to the Coppola family tree. As soon as more legal issues were cleared, including Fleming's estate unsuccessfully trying to stop production, progress could finally continue on what was then titled Warhead, with Warner Brothers distributing. And with Eon out of the way, the eventually to be released movie was immediately marked as non-canon. What exactly does non-canon mean? Well, they're stories that use characters from existing intellectual properties but are not an official part of its universe. Everything from Star Wars Shadows of the Empire to porn parodies? all the various fan films that saturate YouTube, and that Marvel slash fiction that you might be working with. This might be a good time to mention another non-canon Bond flick, 1967's Casino Royale, which was plagued with its own set of behind-the-scenes kerfuffles and legalities, and featured at least a half-dozen different men and women playing variations of Bond. Casino Royale's studio had no confidence in the satire, refusing critic screenings and letting it flop on release. And there's the hour-long 1954 TV version of Casino Royale with an American Bond named Jimmy. Not exactly the best company for Never Say Never Again to be in. Unhappy with the progress of McClory and Connery, here playing the role of script consultant, Schwartzman hired Flash Gordon writer Lorenzo Semple Jr., who had to satisfy both creative ambitions and the army of attorneys monitoring the project to make sure it was within the legal boundaries of Thunderball. Once Semple was dismissed after several rewrites, the former and future 007 attempted to hire Tom Mankiewicz, the screenwriter of his previous Bond picture, Diamonds Are Forever. But out of loyalty to Eon, Mankiewicz wisely opted out of the project. Writers Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet would later step in during production, but would ultimately go uncredited on the movie. The broad strokes of Never Say Never Again are the same as Thunderball. Criminal consortium Spectre steals nuclear warheads to extort money from the countries of the world, and Bond follows a lead to the Bahamas, womanizing all the way before saving the day. However, Thunderball did lack a nonsensical video game with electrified joysticks, which of course wasn't cutting-edge technology until 1983. Once a draft of the screenplay was ready, casting could begin. Around this time, production was also gearing up on Octopussy, the 13th entry in the official Bond series. With Roger Moore returning for his sixth time as 007, McClory and company knew they needed a big name to compete at the box office, a showdown that the press would dub the Battle of the Bonds. At that time, Timothy Dalton and James Brolin were already in the running as the next Bond, after Moore considered moving on before sticking around to fight Christopher Walken. Dalton would eventually take over for two films in the late 80s, and Brolin would briefly get to play his own Bond-esque character named... The name's Herman. P.W. Herman. But for Never Say Never Again, there was ever only really one obvious choice. Connery. Sean Connery. Of course, Connery wasn't coming cheap, despite a career cooldown with duds like Five Days One Summer and Wrong is Right. But Bond was really his character, and he would pocket $3 million, plus 15% of the profits, which eventually more than doubled his salary. And so, after a 12-year absence, Sean Connery would reprise the role that made him famous. Connery was 52 when production began which is ironic considering that creator Ian Fleming had once believed 43-year-old actor Trevor Howard was too old to play the character. Fleming probably would have hated the living daylights out of 57-year-old Roger Moore in the role. 
Connery was contractually permitted to put his stamp of approval on the whole cast. The primary antagonist, Maximilian Largo, changed from Emilio Largo due to the ever-present copyright issues, would be played by Klaus Maria Brandauer, who would soon get an Oscar nomination for Out of Africa. The role of Specterhead Blofeld was assigned to screen legend Max von Sydow, although Orson Welles was considered early on. Much of von Sydow's performance ended up on the cutting room floor, but he did get to define the perfectly reasonable goals of his organization. The special executive for counterintelligence, terrorism, revenge, and extortion. Blofeld's inclusion is actually a key element to the history of the Bond franchise, as Never Say Never Again marks the last time he and his nefarious syndicate would appear until 2015 in the Daniel Craig entry, Spectre. Well, sort of. Eon Productions, in a bit of a power move to bypass copyrights, opened 1981's For Your Eyes Only with an unnamed bald dude with a Nehru jacket and a Persian cat being comically dispatched. Former model Barbara Carrera, who was apparently also considered for the title role of Octopussy, would play sultry villain Fatima Blush. Rounding out the supporting cast would be Kim Basinger in an early role, Rowan Atkinson getting early training for Johnny English, and Bernie Casey as Felix Leiter, the first time the CIA agent would be played by a black man, perhaps later influencing the casting of Jeffrey Wright. To prepare for the movie's fight scenes, including a lengthy brawl with Man Mountain Pat Roach, who had bloodied his knuckles on Indiana Jones's face just a couple years earlier, Connery received some martial arts training with none other than Aikido master and future ponytailed action star Steven Seagal. Whether accidentally or purposely, Seagal supposedly broke Connery's wrist, an injury the actor lived with for years before realizing the extent of the damage. In the movie's early stages, Master of Suspense Alfred Hitchcock was desired as director. This didn't make it too far out of concerns his domineering personality would overshadow the production. Another potential was Richard Donner, best known at that point as the director of The Omen and blockbuster Superman. But Donner didn't care for the script, maybe not enough lethal weapons in it. Previous Bond helmer Terence Young and the towering Inferno director John Gillerman were also considered. Directing duties eventually went to Irvin Kirshner, who had public prestige for directing The Empire Strikes Back and would be the first American to direct a Bond film. Cameras rolled in September 1982, more than 20 years since the idea's inception, with production in such luxurious locales as the French Riviera and Nassau, at least allowing McClory to live out his desire to dip his toes in the waters of the Bahamas. The production of Never Say Never Again went about as smoothly as the rest of the film's history. There were immediate conflicts of egos and personalities. Kirshner didn't respect Jack Schwartzman, and neither did Connor, who called the producer incompetent and a real ash. Connery reportedly put so much fear into Schwartzman that the producer would often leave the set without a word. Kirshner got along well with Connery, who he had previously directed in the 1966 comedy A Fine Madness, but clashed with other cast members, with Kim Basinger calling it one of the worst experiences she had on a movie. Kirshner supposedly also had a reputation for dismantling screenplays, and this was no exception. He felt that the starting script was, quote, designed to satisfy a contract more than an audience and he thought that Bond spent more time watching action than engaging in it. The frustrating limitation was that every subsequent script alteration had to remain within the established legal parameters. There were daily disputes over the production's chaotic nature, with Connery referring to the whole operation as a bloody Mickey Mouse outfit. Because of the short prep time, script changes, schedule pressures, multiple locations, and constant threat of litigation, Kirshner later described the ordeal as brutal and tiring. Funding on the movie also ran out, forcing Schwartzman to pay for some of the production out of his own wallet. 
the movie's protracted production, and considerable reshoots, which Basinger claimed was enough footage for two and a half more films, eventually pushed the final cost to a reported $36 million, a bigger budget than that year's Return of the Jedi. What money couldn't buy, however, was one of the most iconic parts to the Bond franchise. Due to copyrights held by Eon, Never Say Never Again could not use Maurice Binder's famous gun barrel opening. And so, instead of Bond whipping his Walther at the audience, we got this. And, similar to Tom Mankiewicz's reluctance to join the team, composer John Barry, who had scored nine of the Bond films up to that point, declined to lend his talents out of loyalty to Eon. Instead, Oscar winner Michel Legrand took the baton. Meanwhile, on the Bond theme front, Lainey Hall landed the task of singing the title song, joining the ranks of Shirley Bassey, Nancy Sinatra, and Paul McCartney. But she wasn't the only name on the list. Bonnie Tyler declined, calling the song, and this is a quote, Ugh, shit, I don't like it. She now regrets the missed opportunity of doing a Bond theme, but probably not the Platinum Smash Total Eclipse of the Heart, which came out the same year, since her schedule was clear. Another name was Phyllis Hyman, who recorded an unsolicited version of the theme song, which was rejected and, big surprise, threatened with a lawsuit. What did you expect? Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Earlier, the film's title had temporarily been James Bond of the Secret Service, but the final title on the posters would be an in-joke on Connery's insistence he would never play the role again after his disappointment in Diamonds Are Forever. The idea for the name actually came from Connery's wife, Micheline, and for it, she received the rare title buy credit. For those keeping score, Sean Connery's wife has a credit on Never Say Never Again, but two-thirds of the screenwriters don't. Never Say Never Again was released on October 7, 1983, just four months after Octopussy. Kirshner's film grossed $10.9 on opening weekend, topping the official predecessor by $2 million, although Octopussy's final total would beat Never Say Never Again by $12 million. Never Say Never Again would also go on to earn a Golden Globe nomination for Barbara Carrera, who must have impressed them with her explosive performance. Never Say Never Again would be Sean Connery's final appearance as Bond, not counting his voice contribution to the 2005 video game From Russia With Love. Kevin McClory never had another movie produced, although in the 1990s he did try, once again, to turn the Thunderball material into yet another movie, this time titled Warhead 2000 AD, calling back to one of the script's early titles. That attempt would only be a blip, not even worthy of the sort of controversy that surrounded Never Say Never Again. The legal knots extended even past McClory's death in 2006. In 2013, his heirs sold the remaining properties to Eon, with MGM also getting a piece of the distribution rights. Never Say Never Again had one more lawsuit lined up. In 2017, a class action lawsuit was filed against MGM and Fox regarding two separate Bond box sets, neither of which included the non-Eon films. The studios finally decided to give in, offering digital copies of both Never Say Never Again and the 1967 Casino Royale for free, provided consumers filed their claims by May 2018. As for future box sets, that settlement made it clear the non-Eon pictures would not be included. But if we've learned anything from this entire story, never say never.